I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, Episode 37, The Lost Conan Doyle Manuscript. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burt Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! You could not have come at a better time indeed. <laughs> Hello again and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where... It's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. And I'm Bert Wolder. And that means together again we unite our forces for good instead of evil <laughs> in bringing you the latest and greatest in the world and the world around Sherlock Holmes. That's right. Yes, indeed. The, so, uh, the world once of again, good and niceness. Nice, nice, nice. Sugar and spice and all things nice. And, of course, speaking of all things nice, we have our sponsor, those nice folks at the Wessex Press. Nice. You can find them online at wessexpress.com. Uh, Steve Doyle and Mark Gagan uh, run that fine shop over there that produce such wonderful uh, books as uh, as as I'm, I'm blanking because I don't have my cheat sheet in front of me. Uh, well, they produce the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes reference library. They produce Sherlockian writings, both humorous and scholarly. They've published Ronald Knox and Sherlock Holmes, The Origins of Sherlockian Studies. Yes. They've published uh, Sherlockian Heresies by Leo Savage. That's a new book with an introduction by Julie McCurris and Susan Vizoski. And they've published Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman, a joint project by uh, S.C. Dollinger and Les Klinger. All excellent suggestions. And, of course, they just completed... Uh, from Gillette to Brett Three in Indianapolis, a, a multi-day conference about Sherlock Holmes on the stage and screen where uh, our previous guest, uh, Michael Hoey, actually made an appearance uh, along with a number of other folks. Yeah, except, uh, except us. I really regret yeah. that we couldn't be there. And I saw Michael in New York um, last week and he was – was it last week? Actually, it was probably earlier this week. And uh, he was really um, – um, very pleased with the conference and the reception and uh, the group. He had a, had a grand time, and we we've got to set our sights on Gillette to Brett Four. We've got to get to the next one. Ah, yes, Gillette to Brett Four, the revenge. <laughs> Well, uh, we have some repeat guests tonight, and this is certainly not revenge. So let's get right to them. Yes. So we are delighted to be joined on this episode 
by two gentlemen who have graced the airwaves with us once before. You may remember John Lellenberg and Daniel Stassauer, both members of the BSI, were here with us on episode 13 to cover their book, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, A Life in Letters. And they're here with us again because the dynamic duo has teamed up and uh, has, has gotten us to the point where we are ready. The, the world is prepared <laughs> for that very first manuscript that Conan Doyle had written but had never before seen the light of day, the narrative of John Smith. Now, neither John nor Smith could be with us tonight, but we, well, actually, we do have John, but not Smith. Uh, but he is Lellenberg, and Dan is Stas, our gentleman. Welcome. Thank you very much for having us again. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for being here. So, so Dan, John, to kick things off, uh, before we get into what the narrative of John Smith is, can you tell the folks a little bit about the circumstances around its disappearance and recovery? Well, absolutely. There was a story that that uh, Conan Doyle himself told in an article that he published in The Idler in 1894. He was talking about his struggles as an aspiring young writer. And he was uh, talking at some length about an early manuscript that he had spent a great deal of time on, which he had then rolled up into a tube and put into the mail where it promptly was lost forever. And he wrote, Alas for the dreadful thing that happened, the publishers never received it. The post office sent countless blue forms to say that they knew nothing about it. And from that day to this, no word has ever been heard of it. Of course, it was the best thing I ever wrote. <laughs> Whoever lost a manuscript that wasn't. Oh, amazing. And, 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 what, and what year was that? That was 1884? It was 1894 that he was telling the story, but the year that it in, w in which it actually happened was was uh, much earlier. Was that 82, 1882? Or? He where did, where started it? writing the novel in 1883, um, lost it, and then started rewriting it from memory in the early part of 1884. Hmm. Wow. And while he confessed to the disappearance of the original manuscript in that article, he did not disclose there <laughs> or many years later in his autobiography that, in fact, he had rewritten it from memory so, and that it was still in his possession. So where did this uh, later manuscript end up, and, and how did the two of you discover it and, and come to make something of it? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, when the Christie's was uh, getting ready for its auction of Conan Doyle papers that belonged to the heirs of Anthony Conan Doyle in 2004, um, they were sending their draft catalog copy to us to, uh, to, to look over and to comment on. And um, one day, uh, when a new section arrived, we saw one entry that astonished us because the only thing it seemed possible to be uh, was the manuscript that he said had been lost in the mails and never seen again. And we somewhat mystified let them know this and so they uh, rewrote their entry in the catalog to make it clear that this was this uh, first novel manuscript uh, that he had talked about in, in uh, Memories and Adventures. 
and it was purchased by the uh, British Library. It was uh, clearly one of the things that they wanted strongly, and they won it. And uh, then about two years ago, they uh, decided that this should be published with some scholarly apparatus and contacted me again in my capacity as agent for the Conan Doyle estate. Hmm. And out of that has come this, this edition that the, the uh, British Library published this on them. So when, when was the first time you actually saw the manuscript? Because I gather what happened at first was you got a description so somebody wrote you and said, you know, we have this manuscript. It's got this title. It's so many pages. Is is that kind of the first contact you had with it? Um, I think the first time I saw it uh, was among the uh, items in that auction that they brought to New York for display yes. prior yeah. to it. Um, but at that time, I you know, neither of us had any opportunity to examine the entire manuscript. Yeah, no, I... We were, I, I we we sort of were peering at it through glass at that point. Yes, exactly. <laughs> peering at the front page. Yeah. Um, we uh, it was only after they decided that uh, this ought to be published that we mm. actually got copies of the entire manuscript and sat down to read this dreadfully unpublishable for early work of his. And and why is it that um, you didn't think it was the manuscript, that sort of subsequent to Memories and Adventures it had popped up? or What what what, what led you... Where did he mention that he'd rewritten it? In, uh, only in a letter to his mother. Ah. Uh, a couple of letters to his mother that came, that came to light when we were doing our Arthur Conan Doyle Life and Letters book in which he says that, no, I never got poor John Smith back. I am rewriting him from memory, but I am very pressed for time right no. now, or word to that effect. And, and in fact, this, uh, this version of it that we have here is not complete. It's, he seems to have undertaken the rewriting of it uh, from memory and made some changes that we're able to discern because it refers to events that happened subsequently, but it, he didn't finish. Hmm. It ends hmm. quite abruptly in the in the middle of a line. And and so to sort of set the environment for our listeners, uh, let's talk a little bit about Conan Doyle in 1883. He'd not yet written Study in Scarlet. He was still in South Sea. He was in his early 20s. And for a long while, he had been publishing this, that, and the other thing in journals and magazines. So he felt uh, pretty good about his powers as a short story writer. In fact, in those days, in some publications, it was the custom to present a story without any authorship. And one of his stories had been presumed by um, readers to have been by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is not, you know, no small compliment. So so he's in his early 20s. He's still working a medical practice. He's in South Sea. And he has this sort of background of publishing essays and short stories. And why don't you pick it up from there? Well, well I think that background was still fairly thin at the time. Uh, he had published some stories and articles. Um, he probably had more rejection notices than acceptances at that point, and uh, none of them had really gotten him a great deal of attention because of that pernicious custom, as he thought, of publishing works of fiction in magazines without any byline. Um, so it was, you know, 
to to uh, he saw writing a novel as a way to get his name on the title page finally and on the spine of a of a volume, and actually get the whatever recognition and credit his uh, his the the work's merits would uh, bring him. Mm-hmm. Dan, Dan, did I step on you? No, not at all. That's uh, that's exactly it. Uh, he he said at one point uh, that um, he had he'd had some luck publishing short stories. He'd earned a little bit of money here and there, and there was a particular story that uh, there was Sasassa Valley that had appeared in Chambers Journal in uh, 1879, and he said uh, after receiving that little check, I was a beast that has once tasted blood. <laughs> For I knew that whatever rebuffs I might receive, and God knows I had plenty, I had once proved I could earn gold, and the spirit was in me to do it again. Hmm. But he was getting rejected over and over, and he came to realize, uh, as as John indicated, that he really wasn't going to get any traction just making the short story publications and the articles. And uh, this manuscript that we have here, John Smith, was his first attempt hmm to get his name onto a novel. And and he was by no means confident, was he, that that uh, that he knew how to do in the novel form what he'd already done successfully in short stories? He was um, very insecure about his ability uh, to transition from a short story writer, in which he was still striving to become quite the writer he wanted to be. Uh, to a novel, whether he could sustain the plot over the length of a novel, whether he could develop characterizations that would be sustainable at that length as well. And frankly, on the evidence of this first novel, uh, he he wasn't yet able to, uh, but it was a very necessary step in his development as a writer. And uh, well, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to the to the actual nature of of the narrative of John Smith, but it uh, its survival provides a remarkable window into the mind of a of a very young uh, 23, 24 year old struggling writer uh, who's basically writing in order to supplement a, a fair, still very thin income as a struggling physician. <laughs> So before we do get to the narrative itself, um, help us understand how the two of you as uh, fairly uh, well-recognized scholars of uh, Conan Doyle would take this manuscript uh, that you've said ends mid-sentence and and say, you know what, The, the world needs to see this and it needs to see it either in its uh, existing fashion or we need to somehow complete it to go for what Conan Doyle was aiming for. What was your, what was your approach with that, and, and, and how did the thinking go as you uh, took on this project? What, if I, can, if, I need to give some credit to a third person, and that is uh, Rachel Foss, who is the curator of modern literary manuscripts at the British Library, and as such has these and other Conan Doyle manuscripts under her purview there. I think it was Rachel who made the case internally at the British Library that this ought to be published by them, and then uh, was certainly the person who contacted me about it uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, Rachel is, you know, not only a co-editor of the book, but you know, had 
direct input of her own into the uh, scholarly apparatus for the book, particularly the introduction, and also I think it was the sole author of the note on the manuscript that is uh, later in the book. Um, I think Dan and I did most of the annotations, but uh, she was a valuable resource uh, for some of them as well, and also uh, basically put the arm in some other people at the British Library to answer certain questions uh, that we had not been able to about references in the manuscript. As you read the manuscript, certain lights go off in your head, and you see ideas that would be worked out in other forms in later Conan Doyle works, making their first appearance here. And there are bits of the manuscript that stayed with him all his life. He clearly kept the manuscript close at hand throughout his career, and even fairly late in the day would go back to it and lift out material that he had first set down in these very, very early days and work it out in some other form in later books. And it was fascinating to go through as we began to work on it and see all these things that appear in embryo form that would be picked up and developed in later work, including Sherlock Holmes and elsewhere in books like uh, the Stark Monroe Letters and um, and some of the historicals. What are what are some of the specifics in in those examples, Dan? Oh gosh, uh, there's well, there's one of which we are both very fond where he's uh, talking about uh, Carlyle, Thomas Carlyle, a writer of whom he was very, very uh, fond. And if you'll indulge me, I'll find it and read it to you, because if I'm not mistaken, you will recognize a certain thing that happens here. He says, uh, Carlyle, who had a vein of grim but very genuine humor in his composition, defines the quality as being a sympathy with the underside, a description which is subtle to the verge of incomprehensibility. Old Thomas was never very strong on definitions. His explanation of genius as being an infinite capacity for taking pains has been often quoted, but is, I take it, the most symmetrically and completely false definition which has ever been advanced, though as a statement of what genius is not, it is crisp and concise. I have known one or two men in my life who might come under the category. And the predominant features of their characters were that they had the power of arriving at results intuitively and instinctively, which would cost other men much trouble and labor. Hmm. Now, even apart, even apart from that direct quote, genius is an infinite capacity for taking pains, would you not catch something of the scent of a certain Baker Street detective whose first appearance was only a year away. Mm. <laughs> well, and is, do you think he's referring to uh, Joe Bell at that point in terms of his acquaintances? That people absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Bell, of course, was uh, one of his most brilliant and influential teachers in the profession he was now struggling to, uh, to establish himself in. If I can give one other example, it's a favorite of ours. Um, in his semi-autobiographical novel, The Stark Monroe Letters, there is uh, an incident in which a young, well, I'm not sure a young, but a curate of uh, the local parish comes to call upon him, basically, to stake out his territory. And Stark Monroe, who uh, does not believe in organized religion or the curate's church, 
takes him on in a considerable debate until the the curate, very, very indignant and upset, uh, basically flees the house. And this particular section, which uh, may well be uh, based upon an actual incident when Conan Doyle settled in South Sea, um, Jeff Stabbert, the author of a study in South Sea, uh, thought so and, and actually named the clergyman in question, uh, was just lifted by Conan Doyle directly out of this manuscript, the narrative of John Smith, and plunked it down into this other work of his. But that happened uh, with great frequency, we found, as we went through the manuscript and found item after item in other stories and books of, of Conan Doyle's uh, had originated in it. It's rather, I mean, it's rather extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's as if you had found a previously unknown first work by Stevenson or by H.G. Wells or by Jules Verne or by, um, you know, any notable author with a body of work um, that characterizes their life, and you found this odd, original, youthful source document uh, it's rather extraordinary, isn't it, that that all of these things that would prove so useful later bubbled out of him in 1883? I think that's a very important part of the fascination of it. Uh, we can see his his talent coming to a boil, his his uh, his interests maturing, and him reaching towards something better, getting control of his gifts. In the same way that you know, there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, the early Hemingway novels that were that have been published, mm-hmm. uh, some of them not, you know, obviously uh, a lot of it to some controversy. Some of it's not very good, but there is value to people who are interested in certain writers. Whether it's, uh, you know, I, I'd go so far as to say Lincoln at Cooper Union, uh, the Beatles in Hamburg, uh, people who are on the brink of something better, and seeing these things rising up in them and coming to a boil. And when you read this, you see a writer who's not who's doing something that in and of itself wasn't going to make his name. And apparently he came to understand that himself. But you see him getting a giant boost of confidence mm-hmm. and moving towards the next thing. And and for those and for the readers who might be a little curious, can you give us a little sketch of who poor old John Smith is and what he's about? And uh, and, and do you have any idea how Conan Doyle sort of centered on such a character at this particular? It's odd. I mean, it just seems to me. Uh, maybe this is another question, but it seems to me a bit odd that a twenty-three-year-old sort of embarked on this should should. Should uh, you know that should conjure up a character like Smith? Well, Smith, I think, is basically a voice for Conan Doyle, but uh, he wanted the voice to belong to a mature man rather than a twenty-three-year-old like himself. It's uh, John Smith is a middle-aged man who is laid up for a week by in his boarding house room by gout, and since he can't be out and about and must be inactive, he spends the time uh, ruminating on uh, quite a range of issues, um, very weighty issues, uh, (laughs) uh, occasionally being able to discuss them as well with his doctor, with his uh, landlady, 
uh, with a young lady, an artist, who lives across the street and whom he commissions to do some work for him, and also with uh, an upstairs boarder in this lodging house, a half-pay army major who's had a Giselle bullet through his knee, hmm. uh, which is one more bell that the, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, that uh, John Smith rings about Conan Doyle's future work. <laughs> and um, while John Smith is presented as a middle-aged man, basically he, like many 23-year-olds, holds uh, very strong views about very weighty issues in life and expresses them with considerable conviction and fervor. And it's this that makes the manuscript a fascinating uh, thing to, to have in terms of what Conan Doyle was thinking about at this time and what he thought about them, and particularly when you realize that he is only two years away from creating Sherlock Holmes. And, you, Bert, you're talking about uh, maybe it, there might perhaps be a disconnect between Conan Doyle being a very young man at the time and creating this character to be his mouthpiece, mm. who is a man of 50. Uh, and a man with with much of his life at that time behind him. And what's interesting is to compare this novel, John Smith, to a novel that, that came not so long afterwards, uh, Stark Monroe, mm-hmm. where he uses a great deal of the same material but shifts the main character. Suddenly it's a young man, a young man moving forward instead of an older man looking back. And you can like see a young Conan- man moving forward as a doctor. Yes, exactly. So you, you you see that, that Conan Doyle had made a change, had made some decisions about the kind of storyteller he wanted to be, the kind of narrative voice he wanted to use in just that short amount of time. You know, you wonder if in Southsea, when he's um, working on his practice, if he encountered uh, a patient like Smith and said to himself, you know, this could this could be a novel. It's it's possible that he did. We don't know uh, about the great majority of the patients in his practice. We know about a few, and to some extent you can see them reflected in this. Um, for one thing, uh, South Sea was the residential district of Portsmouth, which was one of England's largest naval and military bases, and he met military men there. Uh, he had some as patients. He got to understand what they were like and how to depict them in fiction and I think you see some of that in the uh, the half-pay major who lives in the boarding house and who is one of um, John Smith's greatest interlocutors. Smith himself is portrayed as having had quite a range of experience in life over quite a large portion of the globe hmm. and he at one point he rattles off uh, what all he had done. And the interesting thing about that list uh, is that Conan Doyle had already done almost all of the things that John Smith in his 50s is portrayed as having done, <laughs> having been to the Arctic, having been to West Africa, uh, you know, you know, tried to win a place as a, as a writer in literary society and so forth. I think the only one that he definitely uh, the experience that he gave to John Smith that he had not actually had himself 
was having been a soldier in the United States at one point in his life, <laughs> uh, presumably the Civil War. And significantly, that seems to be an experience that Conan Doyle, throughout his life, wishes he had had. You know, he was yeah. always moving towards the military. Uh, and it's uh, no accident that he gave it to John Smith. Or to John Watson, for that matter. Exactly. So is it, what was his custom in, in those days? Is it likely that he's the only one who ever, until now, that he's the only one who's ever read this? Would he have shared a draft with his brother or with his mother? Or did, did other, did, was he want to, uh, to ask people for you know, what they thought as he was writing? You know, he had obviously told his mother about it um, because he reports, no, I, I didn't get it back and so forth in a letter to her. But he reported all of his efforts at literature to her. His letters, as you know from our other book, is uh, in the South Sea years, is quite a catalog of everything he's written, what's out, to which magazines, whether it's accepted or not, and so forth. And how much um, he got paid for it. And how much he, he got he was, paid for it. He was a great record keeper. <laughs> yes. The, uh, he didn't date his letters very no, much, but no, he was, no. but otherwise, <laughs> he was a great record keeper. Uh, but, uh, there's no evidence I have detected that his, that his mother had ever actually read it, had the chance to read it. He had only had one copy that had disappeared. Uh, I don't know that he ever showed the rewrite to her since he saw fit to get to a certain point and stop and never never complete it. Um, his brother was living with him in South Sea at the time, but he was only nine or ten and uh, years old at the time. And while Arthur might have tried reading it to Ennis, I'm not sure that many 10-year-old boys are going to sit still long listening to some 55-year-old man uh, talk garrulously about religion, science, and similar subjects the way that John Smith does. No, that would have been a pretty good way of getting Ennis to sleep at night, um, but I don't know that he would have gotten any constructive feedback. Yeah. Well, well, also, you know, you get... Um, uh, you know, I, I, even for those of us who have a deep affection to the, with the canon and Conan Doyle, I think relatively few of us, except for you two and some others, really have a sense of how remarkable a character uh, he was. He was larger than life in so many ways in terms of his enthusiasms, his interest, um, how he spent his time. But even from the standpoint of his literary work, not much attention is really paid to his poetry. And one of the nice things about the narrative of John Smith is, um, you know, that there is this sort of Kipling-esque um, poem that pops up, Captain Dick's Promotion. Corporal with, Dick. Corporal Dick, right. Corporal Dick's Promotion, you know, which has a, which has a, um, a verse in it like this. The corporal glanced at the darkening west stuck his pipe in his khaki vest, growled out an oath and onward pressed, still glancing over his shoulder. Bedouin's mate, he curtly <laughs> said, we'll have some work for steel and lead and maybe sleep on a sandy bed before we're one hour older. You know, it's just great stuff. 
And yep. even even in his early twenties, you know, he's he's doing enough work to be able to uh, uh, put a verse. I mean, this is I haven't counted the stanzas here, but this is an enormous uh, uh, military esque uh, poem that he just sort of has tucked in here. It's very reminiscent of Kipling, who yeah. I think was a strong influence upon him. Um, but I'm not actually sure how far along in his career Kipling was at this time uh, to know whether he was uh, really the model for it or not. Uh, but it's quite a good poem. Uh, he did retrieve it from the manuscript later on and published it and uh, later included it in his poetry collection, Songs of Action. Mm. And one of uh, our favorite moments, I would say, in working on this book was uh, there's a terrific inside joke in uh, The Lost World, which was published uh, in, in 1912. And, of course, you, you'll remember the book, uh, but there's a scene in which uh, Professor Challenger and his companions are getting themselves ready for a big battle at the climactic moment. And Lord John Roxton is trying to rally the troops, and he recites from this poem. <laughs> and the line, uh, I'm just looking for it here, I got it. The line uh, is, uh, with their rifles grasped in their stiffened hands, mid a ring of the dead and dying, he reaches this, this grand climax, but then he deflates it, he steps back and he quietly adds, as some fathead sings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a little poke in his own ribs. Exactly. That's right. And it's such an inside joke. Yeah. You know, such a such a quiet uh quiet thing, but yeah. you can see Conan Doyle chuckling to himself in well, the it's background. It's funny, it's funny, isn't it, how how artistic people do that. You know, the director John Landis, who uh directed Animal House and The Blues Brothers and uh, oh, a whole bunch of movies. When he was a kid, he wrote a screenplay with the title See You Next Wednesday. And it was terrible, and it was never produced, never published. But in every one of his films, a character walks past a, a movie house, and there's a poster up for See You Next Wednesday, <laughs> and, or some other reference to the film. It's in a newspaper or something. It's funny how uh, those things recur. It is. Uh, discovering this uh, as we were annotating the text of John Smith was uh, one of the great moments of delight that we had in, in the work. You know, and there he were does, a lot of others. So. And he does a good job with the character voices. You know, all these people sound different. And, um, and uh, so he must have been pleased about his ability to sustain the characters over, over the, the narrative. The issue, as is, I think you two have pointed out, is that not very much happens. Nope, it's uh, not a not what you would call a strong, vigorous plot line. Yeah. Um, and it's a and remarkable thing because this is a, a writer, obviously, who became known and celebrated for his spellbinding way of crafting a story mm. uh, for these incredibly interesting uh, uh, tales in which all kinds of things happen. And it's just remarkable that in this first one, Literally nothing happens. It is a man well, totally becalmed and just spouting his ideas. But Conan Doyle got it out of his system and very quickly turned to other things. Well, and I, yeah, I suppose and, and, it was... And, Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that 
while it might not have done his reputation as a writer much good if this had actually appeared in print, and I think, frankly, the chances of that were poor, but if it had, it could have damaged his reputation when he was very young. At the same time, since it didn't appear in print, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's arguable whether Sherlock Holmes would have been quite the work it was without this, mm-hmm. because you have all the different uh, different references in this book that are echoed in the Sherlock Holmes for, uh, stories, and particularly in the study in Scarlet to, to lead off with. Mm. Well, on the other hand, he could have gotten some great editorial advice and been an even better. <laughs> Well, I suppose it was accurately titled as a narrative and not an adventure. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, let me remind you that when he had written the first Sherlock Holmes tale, The Study of Scarlet, uh, the editorial advice he got from his hero among editors, James Payne, is don't waste your time with shilling shockers. Yeah, that's true. It's a good yeah. reminder. The market is flooded with cheap fiction at present. <laughs> Yeah, well said. So, so was the oh, decision teaching. not to uh, publish this? Uh, obviously, it was it was unfinished for one. But do you think, in Doyle's heart of hearts, that he didn't think at that point it was up to snuff and simply did not put the effort back into it to complete it, or that he knew that it was uh, simply not worth uh, worth publishing based on what he had already put out and decided, you know what, let's just, uh, let's just keep this quiet. I've tried putting myself in his head on that very point, and I don't have a very good answer. Um, he says to his mother at the beginning that he is going to rewrite it from memory. We found, on the other hand, uh, elements in it, things he's quoting and so forth, that were extremely fresh, uh, freshly published. Uh, they could not have been in the earlier novel because they hadn't been published yet. So uh, even as he was supposedly rewriting it from memory, uh, new thoughts, new material was creeping into it. What I think he eventually concluded is that even if he might have been strengthening the novel that way, it didn't have much of a trajectory as a novel as far as, as, far as plot was concerned. Um, I have no idea how the original version of this, which did reach a, at some point a final page with the end written at the bottom of it, what that was like. Because, as I, you know, as, as we said, and there's no indication that anything other than this was going to happen, it's John Smith sitting on the couch in his room, laid up by gout, ruminating about things. Conan Doyle could be, on occasion, a, a pretty shrewd judge of his own material. You know, he came to think poorly of uh, the refugees. Uh, he omitted to republish uh, The Mystery of Clumber uh, from, from his collected works. You know, he, he was capable of turning a pretty shrewd eye on his own, pro- on his own uh, work, but it's very, very hard to say in abandoning this book whether it was a question of, mm. gee, this really isn't very good, or whether he was simply overtaken by other, other ideas, other events, other things that were going on in his life. It must have been hard enough at the time to devote, uh, to, to put in the time to do right, to do the writing at all. 
much less a sustained work like this. Mm. Yeah, this ha- this issue has to be inconclusive, but it's very possible that in the year that had passed between, you know, from starting the original version that got lost in the mails and then doing this rewriting, that he had grown enough of, his, of a writer to, at the point where he's just begun Chapter 6, he says... This isn't going anywhere. <laughs> and he stopped. Enough. Yeah, yeah, it's entirely but possible. But also, enough of a writer that he hangs on to the manuscript and he recycles material out of it for years. Yeah. Well, and, and um, you know, to your point, in the book, before the first chapter, you reprint one page of the manuscript. And it's clear that what he was doing was not simply recovering this from memory, he was improving it. There's barely a line without a correction. You no, know? that's right, and that, which is unlike his later work. Yeah. Uh, but that very much, it, the manuscript as a whole is very much worked over that way. Now, in the transcript that is published in, the, uh, in this edition by the British Library, uh, we basically have put out the corrected version without trying to indicate words he changed from line to line. But you can get an idea of that from that one page in the manuscript that the British Library reproduces in in a couple of occasions where he has got an entire lengthy paragraph written and then completely lined out. We left that in the transcript and indicated as lined out by him because it's interesting to see. There were a few points in the manuscript in which, say, a third of a page or a half of a page has simply been cut out of the of the notebook in which he wrote this. And I couldn't prove this, but it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me if that section he that he had cut out simply wasn't pasted into some other yeah. manuscript later on. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Cut and paste with before there was cut and paste. Yeah. So yeah. so how did it how did this change your sense of Conan Doyle or did it? Did did you think less of him, more of him? Gain gain any insights into him in his early twenties? Um, I think I have a better feeling of what he was like as a young man. Well, I don't think I know that I do because he's basically told me what he thought, what he was thinking about, and what he thought about those those very important issues. Um, I think some of his insecurities as a young man are betrayed by what he, you know, both what he writes in it and the fact that he didn't finish it when he when he went about rewriting it. Um, I think. Some of the jokes, like the one Dan told about the lost world that came to light in the course of of doing this book, uh, made me like him a bit more than ever, not just at the time when he was a young man, but much later in his life. The 1912 for the lost world is, you know, over 30 years after writing this. It's a very mature Conan Doyle then, but he's perfectly happy, you get the feeling that he really got a kick out of making an inside joke at his own expense in The Lost World about this very early work of his. Um, I don't think 
anybody could read this book. Well, I think people reading this book could easily say, this is a young man who certainly has a lot of opinions about things which he hasn't truly deeply experienced yet in his 23-year-old life, and that is true. Um, but I think they'll find it very engaging to see what he did think about these things, which range from uh, religion and science and religion versus science all the way out to uh, the British nation and empire and who would be the great powers of, the, of 500 years hence. Mm. Um, because sometimes there's a lot of surprises in, uh, in store for readers <laughs> who probably think they already know how Conan Doyle thought about things from other things of his they've read or from biographies. <laughs> well, now that that is a great segue because one question that we really should ask both of you on behalf of our audience is uh, what's next? I mean, clearly, you have, now you have published the previously unknown first manuscript of Conan Doyle. Surely there is nothing left. This must be uh, must be the end of the road. The uh, we- yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the Conan Doyle sex tapes will never come out, huh? No, uh, well, those are wax cylinders, and many of them melted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with those. Um, Turns out he had, I, a, uh, he had a Hollywood script uh, that he'd been working on for years. <laughs> that was knocking around. It was going to be Fast and the Furious 4. That's right. Uh, but his, he couldn't get the backing. His last words were, I always wanted to direct. <laughs> yeah. Rosebud. <laughs> now, what's uh, what's next? What's, what are you folks looking forward to, individually or together? Dan and I are, Dan and I are currently uh, annotating... Uh, the transcript of what will include a facsimile reproduction of the diary that Conan Doyle kept on his seven months on the, as a, on an Arctic whaler mm-hmm. in 1880 when he was a medical student, 20 years old at the beginning, beginning of this voyage, turning 21 halfway through uh, the first great adventure of his life. And he kept throughout the voyage a handwritten and hand-illustrated manuscript that is a thing of beauty and it's, it's, much it's fascinating information in it. And so yeah, it's it's full-on wonderful. Yeah. The manuscript is still owned by the family, but the British Library will publish this as well. Uh, and so there will be an introduction by us. There will be the facsimile reproduction of the entire manuscript with all of its drawings, um, some of which he colored in with watercolors later on, um, <laughs> an annotated transcript of it and some other apparatus, hmm. uh, including a couple of the nonfiction things he wrote about the experience later in his life. And you were talking up earlier about how it's, how remarkable it was that he includes this full-blown poem in uh, Narrative of John Smith. <laughs> well, here he is at uh, 80 degrees north latitude, there's a poem in this uh, in this journal, uh, just, and a, a really good poem that he just one morning must have sat down and mm. and decided to create and dash off and put in his journal. Mm. And there's all kinds of stuff like this, um, but it's an absolutely wonderful document. As John said, it's a young man on his on his first adventure, and really in just a stranger in a strange land, seeing sights that he'd never beheld before. 
that, that few people had and mixing with people who were unlike any he'd ever met before. Mm. And uh, he, he says, uh, he says, I went aboard a big straggling youth, but I came off a powerful, well-grown man. Mm. It's really three things in, in one uh, remarkable manuscript. It's a coming of age story. Um, it's a tale of, of a life at sea that doesn't exist anymore, and it's a tale of polar exploration. And the nice thing is, and I'm not going to provide full details at this point, but the nice thing is the voyage and the manuscript, the diary, end with a direct link to Sherlock Holmes to come. Mm. Mm. Bum, bum, Very uh, intriguing. A tale for which the world is not yet prepared. <laughs> when I was first, this was several years ago, transcribing the manuscript, and I got to this passage, which is in the next to last entry in the diary, I got very, very excited about it. <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, I've mislaid I think that... my pocket watch, must hire a detective. <laughs> well, nothing quite, quite like that. <laughs> Close, but no cigar. Gentlemen, I think that's a great way to wrap up our interview here and to leave the folks at home yes. wanting a little bit more and looking forward to the next collaboration between John Lullenberg and Daniel Stashauer. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, gentlemen, and sharing your unique and uh, insightful analysis of Conan Doyle and uh, his works. And uh, we wish you well. Yeah. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. for your interest. It's been a pleasure, and we'll see you in January. Yes. All right. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two. About the flopping fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tale, and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Mermaid Minnie. Met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me any time that I would ask her. Then one evening, her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. God, a whale of a tail, a tail whale of a tail I think that's great. So that is probably only the only time on this podcast you are going to hear Kirk Douglas singing. <laughs> Let's hope so. And that is from... Uh, the twenty 20, the Disney leagues. twenty thousand leagues under the sea, which I forgot Kirk Douglas was in. Yeah. Yeah. I played Ned the Whaler. Ned the Whaler in a song called The Whale of a Tale. And of course there's uh, an interesting connection there because uh, Jules Verne, of course, was a contemporary of Conan Doyle. Yes. Uh a, a science fiction writer. Probably uh he he was probably the first of uh that era that uh, started science fiction, really. And uh, obviously some influences there to Conan Doyle as well. Well, that's a, that is a very good point. Um, I always thought that Verne was a bit earlier, but according to the steam-driven uh, internet, 18, yeah, 1828 to 1905, so he was a little earlier. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, certainly a science fiction pioneer. Boy, when I was a kid and discovered Jules Verne, I uh, uh, loved it. I read everything he wrote. I thought it was fabulous. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, fantastic uh, talking to John and, and Dan, as always. Um, 
really looking forward to continuing to seeing their collaboration. Uh, until then, uh, I think uh, people can see our collaboration and hear our collaboration, more importantly, at uh, a few places. Uh, of course, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, visit us at IHearOfSherlock.com. And uh, in uh, in both of those places, you can, of course, leave feedback and comments and whatnot as uh, via email. I believe the email address still stands at comment at yes. com. And, and you can call us on your wireless telegraph at 774-221-READ. That's 774-221-7323. If you leave us a comment... Uh, we may play it on the program, which we would love to do, or a, su- we, or a suggestion. Indeed, indeed. We do read and listen to all of your uh, calls and suggestions and whatnot. And while we, not, <clears throat> we may not necessarily mention everything in the course of the podcast, you can absolutely be assured that we take your suggestions very seriously. We've got lots of ideas in the hopper, uh, more ideas really than we have time for at this point. Uh, but that's the wonder of podcasting. Stretch this out for all of eternity, or for you, the listener, what probably seems like eternity. Uh, So uh, we are moving into the season where we are getting dangerously close to the release of the next Sherlock Holmes film, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, Mm -hmm. followed closely by the annual Baker Street Irregulars weekend in New York City in January 2012. Uh, And even though we do like to try to keep these... Uh, these broadcasts, these episodes, as evergreen as possible. There are certain things that are timely in nature, and those are a couple that will be taking our attention in in some future episodes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to all of that. And um, and one of the things I wanted to mention, too, is an event that's coming up uh, that involves a friend of ours. Paul Singleton is an actor and a Sherlockian who has written a number of papers that have appeared in the Sherlock Holmes Journal and in the Baker Street Journal. Uh, Paul is going to be doing a reading of a play called Sherlock Holmes in the Hands of Othello, Othello by Alex Simmons. It was first produced in off Broadway in New York in 1987, and it has uh, the author is now revisiting it with rewrites in mind. And Paul and a cast of other professional actors will be doing it on December 4th, Sunday, December 4th at 6 p.m. in New York at the Workshop Theater Company, 312 West 36th Street, and admission is free. So, Love that. Uh, that's exactly the right price. And if you'd like more information, just leave us a comment on the, the show page, and we'll connect you to it. And don't forget we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. That's another place, too. <laughs> Ah, yes, it's that time in the episode when we turn to the editor's gas lamp and the illumination that it provides us all, where we look back at an issue of the Baker Street Journal and share that with you, good listeners. Yes, yes. uh, going going back, and we did so much work, actually, to find uh, uh, an editor's gas lamp from the Baker Street Journal that talked about many of these subjects. We found an absolutely... uh, Wonderful one, yeah. Uh, and Bert, you were you were supposed to mail that to me uh, last week, did you? 
uh, I, uh, I did. I put it in an envelope with enough postage. I, I, uh, well, I, I never received it. Uh, you don't mean, to, <laughs> you don't mean to tell me that it, it was, it must've been lost in the mail, lost in the mail. Oh, um, dear. Well, I guess like Conan Doyle, we'll have to go back in the next episode <laughs> and, and recreate that gas lamp. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what a good idea. <laughs> oh, great. So, uh, we'll leave you gas lampless. We will. Uh, but our intents were there. Our intents were there, and we were in our tents yeah. and sleeping through our most of, uh, most of the evening. <laughs> well, so until then, the only thing left for me to say is you must be Scott Monty. And, and you must be Bert Wolder, <laughs> and that means... The game's afoot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. 